You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. has a love that won't let you go. He has a love that nothing can separate you from. He has a love that is so powerful, it will always be protecting, it will always be guarding, it will always be shielding, even when times of trials and horrible things come. Jesus will always be there. He was thinking of his guys while he was being arrested. They probably didn't have handcuffs, but they probably wrapped them up. Can you fathom for one instant the love Jesus has for you? How much faith would it take to say something knowing full well it wouldn't be understood until later? Jesus knew that they would look back on this day and realize that he was in control the whole time. Jesus didn't act out of emotion like we sometimes do, but instead he showed mercy to the rebellious and the hurtful as we learn from Pastor Dave today. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of John chapter 18 as he continues his message, Shall I not drink this cup? You are Judas, nor the guys who were with him, maybe even not the disciples, understood Jesus was in perfect control of the situation. He was in perfect control. He says, who are you looking for? Now, somebody might come to you and go, well, if he was really God, didn't he know who they were looking for? Well, of course he did. I just told you he knew everything. Of course he did. But he's trying to get something out of them. He always uses other people. He always They responded, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he answers, I am. The word he is in italics. It wasn't there. It was just there added for clarification. He says, I am. Ego in me. I am. I am is the name of God. I am is the name of our great God, Jehovah, the becoming one. And he says, I am. And they fell backward to the ground. Judas must have fallen back too because John makes a point to saying that he was there. They fell down. His voice carries such power that they fell to the ground. Did anybody look around going, why are we here? If this guy speaks and we fall over, what are we doing here? With clubs and weapons and what are we doing? We're going to need more than that. He repeats the question, who are you looking for? When they answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I told you that I am. (laughs) Did he use that voice from the the Ten Commandments? I keep skidding my head. I am. I mean, come on, you have to say that with authority. I am. And things shake and things quake. I told you that I am. Then he says, if you're seeking me, let these go. Ah, now we know why Jesus went out. Now we know why Jesus went forward and, and stood before them. He wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of his guys. He had his guys on his mind the entire time. He knew what was going to befall him, but he was looking to his guys. Hence he says, so I could say none of them were lost, and that prophecy would come true. He steps out and says, I'm here. 
You're not after these guys. Take me. Here I am. I voluntarily give myself to you. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor. He was not a victim. The events are not out of his hand, but they're moving exactly the way the Father had laid them out. It's called the providential hand of God. They're being laid out exactly as God had them. When were they planned? Read your Bible. Before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world. I won't lose any of them, except one. Remember, he told the disciples, where I'm going, you can't go right now. You can't come with me, but, but you'll go later. You'll come later. Jesus' time had come. No one can come with him. He must pay the price to atone for our sin alone. Him and him alone. He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He must pay it alone. A time will come when the disciples will follow in their death. But for now, Jesus must taste the bitter cup alone. But he had great concern for his guys. He'd been thinking of them all along. Jesus gave himself and took the disciples' place. He gave himself and took your place. He took my place. It was as if we were sitting in that garden that day. And Jesus stood up and said, these are mine. I'm the one you want. Let them alone. He took your place. John seems to think this is extremely important because he spends all these verses on this. He leaves out all the other information that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, continue to add in there, giving us what's going on and giving us an oversight. Maybe John had already read their gospels and said, I don't need to add that. I want to focus on this one thing. What are you focusing on, John? That Jesus voluntarily surrendered. Jesus gave his life. He gave it to them. Not only to the troops, but he gave it to the Father as well. On the cross, his last words were what? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What was his motivation? For God so loved the world. The motivation for Jesus was love. The motivation that gave Jesus the impetus to go forward was love. Love for the world. Love for you. Love for me. Love for the sinners same for the rich and poor, same for the saints and for the sinners. That grace was abounding. No wonder Jesus didn't lose anybody. Think about this. Think about this. Jesus has a love that won't let you go. He has a love that nothing can separate you from. He has a love that is so powerful, it will always be protecting, it will always be guarding, it will always be shielding, even when times of trials and horrible things come. Jesus will always be there. He was thinking of his guys while he was being arrested. They probably didn't have handcuffs, but they probably wrapped them up. Can you fathom for one instant the love Jesus has for you? Can you for one minute even begin to fathom what he did for you and what it cost him? Can you believe what happened to here and how much he loved you? Can you understand this? Can you understand how secure you are in his hand? Oh, if God be for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Oh, my. Sometimes I just want to stand up and scream like Job. Though they may slay me, I know my Redeemer lives. And I will be with him on one day. My gosh. Jesus knows that the disciples don't understand any of this. They really don't understand any of this. 
They don't know what's going to happen in the next several hours. They don't know how devastated they're going to be after Jesus dies. He knows that they're not able to handle the things that he even talked to them that night about. He knows that it's going to take a miracle called the resurrection for them to begin to put it together. I love what one commentator said, quote, there, speaking of the disciples, their unbelief will cost them three days of misery, unquote. Brothers and sisters, how many days of misery do we experience because of the lack of faith? How many days of miseries do we go through in our own lives because of a lack of faith? a lack of faith in God's word, and a lack of faith in God's promises. How much misery do we put our own selves through like these disciples? Because we do not believe. We do not fully understand. We do not fully comprehend. And we do not fully trust. How much misery do we put ourselves through? Oh, my. So they barge in there. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. After they picked themselves up and said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. They started to take him. Well, sleeping cozily nearby was a disciples. And none of this sat well with one of them. Somebody got a little upset when all this happened. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. You gotta love Peter. You gotta love him, man. You gotta love him. Say what you will about him, but he was not a coward. He was not a coward at this time. He jumped up, man. He swung that sword now. He probably didn't know how to swing the sword because he didn't use it much. He was used to throwing nets. He probably wanted to cut the guy's head off, but just cut his ear off. Or, as he was singing that sword, God protected that sword from going to the neck and just got the ear. I don't know which way. But the symbol here of the sword is rebellion. It's rebellion, folks. Peter is openly resisting the will of God. He is openly coming against God's will because Jesus knew it was his will to go. Jesus had told the disciples time and time and time again what was going to happen. But Peter never bought into it. He never bought into it. Remember, he argued from the get-go when he made that great profession of faith, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. And then Jesus begins to tell them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, all those things. What was Peter's response? Far be it from you, Lord. He came against him right away. So the entire time, Peter has been arguing against this suffering Messiah. Far be it from you. And his zeal was beautiful, but it was off target. Not only was a swing off target, his, his zeal was off target. It wasn't based on knowledge. What was this based on? Emotion. It was he based on motion. And a lot of times we react because of emotion in us. We react because of how we feel, not what the Word of God says. We react emotionally instead of spiritually. We react with fire and vengeance, and we want to take the sword and chop somebody's head off. But most of the time, the sword we use is the Word of God. We use the Word of God, and we go, you're going to be saved. I just don't believe the Word of God. And we wonder why they don't get saved. Instead of bringing them to the Lord, we're hurting them and causing them pain, just like Peter did. We're rebellion to the word of God. It's rebellion, nothing less and nothing more. Many believe Peter was awakened out of a deep sleep, and he jumped up, and he just started swinging. 
Many of us are all talking about our zeal too, as I said. Many of us use the scriptures as a weapon. We use it as a weapon, and we come up there and say, oh yeah, we start hitting them with scripture after scripture after scripture. And it ends up hurting them instead of loving them, causing pain. But even in the midst of rebellion, even in the midst of Peter's zeal, even in the midst of all this commotion, Jesus is still in control. Because we read in the other accounts that Jesus heals Malchus's ear. He, he heals Malchus's ear. He shows mercy, not only on Malchus, but he shows mercy to Peter too. Because if he didn't do that, there would have been a fourth cross. Because what Peter did was a capital offense. And Peter could have been crucified for that offense. So Jesus knew. So he stood in there and he took place. Peter, what are you doing? What's going on with you? What's going on with you? Have you ever noticed, though, when you're trying to do God's will, someone always comes in and tries to prevent you from doing God's will? Oh, that's not the Lord. You shouldn't be doing that. That's crazy. Why are you doing that? That's nuts, man. You, oh, I don't know, man. That's not the Lord. You get a specific word from the Lord and you start moving that. Oh, you're crazy. You can't do that. Someone always comes in and tries to prevent you from doing God's will. Even though you have scripture on it, you have. it's just crazy how that happens. Don't drink that cup. There's always a better way. And finally, the cup comes back again. And this time, it's the cup of submission. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Jesus struggled in the garden. He struggled greatly. His humanity was raging in the garden. He was struggling with this. He didn't want to do this. His, his flesh was going, no, no way. But spiritually, he was in tune with the Father. And once he totally submitted, there was no turning back. He was saying, Peter, if I wanted to get out of this, I'd get out of it. I don't only don't want to get out of it. I shouldn't get out of it. I'm, not, I'm willingly not going to go out of it. Jesus was now totally committed to drinking the cup. And here the cup represents suffering. It represents separation from the Father. It represents pain. Jesus would endure all of these things for our salvation. And Jesus would do this. He had compared his own sufferings to the drinking of the cup and the experience of baptism in Matthew 20. When he instituted the sacrament of communion, he compared the cup to his blood. The cup symbolized his blood that was poured out, the new covenant, in his blood. Quite possible that the image of a cup was familiar to them. But maybe it's familiar to us too. How many of you, when you're offered something, say, oh, that's not my cup of tea? Maybe that metaphor is familiar to us too. Do you ever notice that a lot of trophies that are given out are in the form of cups? Big old cups. Maybe that suggests that the winners who have them have been through demanding experiences. I don't know. But I do know one thing. Jesus did not deserve the cup. But Jesus wanted the cup. And Jesus drank the cup. Why? 
because it came from the Father. The cup came from the Father. The Father had given it to him. The Father had mixed it. The Father had filled it, and he offered it to him, and Jesus took it and drank it. He knew it was the Father's will. He knew what he had to drink. One commentator says this, quote, The Father fixed the cup, measured the contents. Why? So that Jesus had nothing to fear because it was coming directly from the Father. One time, long ago, I felt, I was praying, and I felt the Lord told me he was going to take me through something. I really didn't understand what it was he was going to take me through. Well, what it was, it was a series of infections and and a series of things that are still in my body, and they become, they're right there, and they're chronic, and they can become acute because they can flare up. But during that time, I was struggling with being sick. I was going to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor, and nobody could find out what was wrong. Nobody could find out what was happening to me, and it was kind of frightening. And B and I were praying about it and praying about it. And one day, I was reading through the scriptures, and I came to this very verse. And it said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And I went, whoa, wait a minute. And it made perfect sense. The Lord was giving me a cup. The Father was giving me a cup, and he was asking me to drink of it. And the cup would contain suffering, and the cup would would contain pain, and there would be problems, and the problems might even be lifelong. But then I realized that the cup he was giving me was the cup that Jesus already drank from. It was already done. It was already completed. Jesus had drunk for the cup. We should never fear the cup that the Father gives us and asks us to drink. We should never fear that cup because Jesus has already drunk from the cup before us and we're supposed to follow him in his footsteps. We're supposed to follow him as his disciples. There's an interesting exchange in Matthew 20 when the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus and says, you know, my guys are so nice. They're so wonderful. They're really great guys. And you know what? You should let one of them sit on your right hand and one on your left hand when you get into the kingdom. I mean, they're really great guys. Think about it. The answer Jesus gave them was, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? This wasn't a rebuke, as you might think. It was a simple question to which they responded, yes, we're able to drink the cup. And Jesus said, you will drink the cup. You will certainly drink that cup. They don't understand what Jesus says, but then he turns to the other disciples who are angered because James and John got there first. They're angered because James and John were the ones who went up there by their mother to ask for this desired placement to be around the throne. But Jesus sets them great. He says the greatness in the kingdom of God is not obtained along the path, not only of love, but it's obtained along the path of sacrifice, suffering, and service. God's economy is different than our economy. Having more isn't winning. Being served isn't the best. Being honored isn't greatness. We, as Jesus' followers, follow in his footsteps. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus confirms the connection in Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The disciples will drink the cup. It's a cup of suffering. But Jesus' cup of suffering is different than theirs. It's different from yours. Because the cup that Jesus drank was filled with yours and my sin. It was filled with all the heinous and horrible things that we've ever done in our lives. And the things that we will yet to do. All our lies and dishonoring and all our stuff that we messed around with all our lives. That's what Jesus' cup was filled with. We don't have to drink that cup. Praise God, he did. 
He did. There's power in the name of Jesus. This is the cup that Jesus had to drink. We never need to fear because the Father has prepared for us this cup in love. It's a cup of love. Ask for bread. He's not going to give you a stone. And the cup he prepares for you will never contain anything that's going to harm you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There may be pain. There may be suffering. But as we studied, our suffering will soon be turned to joy. Our sorrow will turn into joy. Notice the sword of rebellion and the cup of suffering. And John Corson makes this great analogy. He said, if we would take more often the cup, we would lay down more easily the sword. What's in your hand? A sword causing pain or a cup of suffering that brings about humility and unity in the body of Christ? Unquote. Wow. You know, in Gethsemane, Jesus conquered the flesh and kept in subjugation to the Spirit. He did this through earnest prayer, intense prayer, and a willful submission to God's plan. God has a plan for all of your lives, and I don't know what is included in that plan, but I can guarantee somewhere along the line in that plan, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. I can guarantee it. I'm sorry, but that's what the Word of God tells us. It's going to be those things. But it's good to know that when we face those trials, when we come face to face with that cup of suffering, when we come face to face with those things, Jesus knows what it's like for you. He knows what it's like because he's been there. He's been there and he took the cup willingly. He took the cup willingly and yet we don't want it. We don't want it. We don't want to act out of love, yet we dread the hurt that comes along with it. We desire righteousness and obedience, but we scream when our flesh goes, no. The conflict that we have is not sinful. It's human. Remember, Jesus was fully human. Jesus was fully a man. So that he might become the high and faithful priest for us. He came to seek and save that was lost, and he accomplished his mission, even though it meant drinking the cup of suffering to the bitter end. And now he's asked you and me to follow him. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you have been given a bitter cup. Maybe the bitter cup is sitting before you. And the Father is waiting for you to partake of it in total submission to his will. I don't know what the cup is. I don't know what it entails. But it's before you. And the Father is saying, take this cup. When we take the cup of communion, we remember Jesus' sacrifice. And we remember that he paid for all these things and that by his stripes we're healed. He paid for all these things. Jesus drank the cup that the Father had given to him. He drank it so we wouldn't have to drink that terrible, nasty cup that he drank. Know that when the Father gives you the cup of drink, it's given out of love and it's motivated by love. So drink the cup knowing that he'll never leave nor forsake you and he will be with you till the end, the very end. And he's always there. And know that you have him in your corner who has been there where you are, the cup sitting before him. And he willingly said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Amen. The Gospel of John was written from a perspective that provides an eyewitness account of what happened during the life of Jesus here on earth. 
Different than the other three Gospels, John's book describes Jesus in ways that confirm him as the Son of God. There are things done and said that can only point to Jesus being far more powerful than what a human could do. In the Old Testament, God referred to himself as, I am. In this book, John recounts how Jesus said, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the resurrection and the life. These were bold statements, but Jesus proved throughout his ministry that they were indeed true. He lived a life that compelled people to follow at that time, to seek him out, and to commit their lives. And we can also follow him today. If you missed any part of today's teaching, or you'd like to listen to additional messages from Pastor Dave, visit AssureHopeRadio.com. Perhaps you were listening, you realized that you have some questions about faith, and maybe even about salvation. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. You can also click on the Jesus tab at AssureHopeRadio.com. This will provide you with a succinct picture of who Jesus is and how he can change your life. Thank you again for taking the time to learn about God's Word today. We hope you'll join us again next time on Assure Hope.